harnessing low energy fuels is an entirely different challenge as we're finding out. And Germany's finding out the hard way. Look, everywhere it's tried, it ends up with a more expensive grid, a dirtier grid, and a less reliable grid. Hello there, how are you all? You all having a good holiday break? This is going to be the final show of the year. I can't believe it. 2022 has gone so quick. What a crazy year. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today on the show, I have Doomberg, which is somebody I've been trying to get on the show for a while. Now, as you know, I like to do all my interviews in person, if possible, but Doomberg is anonymous, so this is a remote interview. Also, I've been discussing this with Danny a little bit, and we might do a few more remote interviews next year. There are times where there's shows we want to make, which are timely, relevant to the news, and we just can't make them because we've got this like insistence on doing them all in person. So we're going to loosen the rule just a little bit next year to make sure we don't miss certain important interviews that we want to do. But anyway... Doomberg is on the show, and uh, this is somebody I've become quite a fan of. I'm a subscriber to his Substack. I absolutely love the work they're doing, and there was a bunch of things I wanted to get into with him, especially as 2022 became the year where a lot of us became focused on energy. I had a lot of questions about the energy market for Doomberg, especially with the crisis in Europe. But also, I had to find out what he thinks about Bitcoin. So we cover that as well. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. I hope you've had a good year. As I said, 2022 is coming to an end. This is our final show of the year. I'm going to be heading out to Nashville and Austin next week. Going to be making a bunch more shows. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to hanging out with some of you. Even doing a viewing party for a Rail Bedford show in Nashville, which is going to be loads of fun. Okay, if you've got any questions about this, anything else, drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I will get back to you as soon as possible. All right, uh, Doomberg, hello. Uh, it's a bit weird. I'm talking to a green chicken, but uh, uh, hello. It get, you get used to it. Uh, good afternoon, Peter. Hi, Danny. Great to be here. Well, listen, it's great to have you on the show. You've, uh, you've become one of the most requested people to come on What Bitcoin Did. I must get an email, I don't know, every week, two weeks for somebody saying, can you get Doomberg on? Can you get Doomberg on? And I've been, uh, I've been following and listening, to, uh, sorry, reading your emails. And so, yeah, um, it's great to get you on. Appreciate you giving up some time. Uh, most people are on holiday at the moment, so I appreciate that. Well, you know, we like to say when, you, um, when you're doing the work of your life, it doesn't feel like work. And so um, you don't really need a holiday when, when you get to play for a living. And, uh, and you know, we have a, a, actually a pretty substantial following amongst Bitcoin fans, which is surprising since we at least initially started writing critically about more broadly the crypto space, of course. But uh, they're some of our best fans, and it's great to be on. And really great that you accommodated um, uh, us as well on the technology side. Yeah, we like to do interviews in person, but uh, sometimes it costs us because there's people you can't get to or some people want to remain anonymous. So we're going to try and keep most in person. But look, if we have to do remote ones, we'll do them. If if the content's good enough or the person's good enough, we want to do it. And yeah, I mean, look, I've I've seen you guys come up. I've seen the, the, the Doomberg team create a bit of a splash over this, uh, especially this last year. And I think it's main, a lot to do with the energy markets because energy has become this hot topic not just for us as Bitcoiners. I mean, we consider it as Bitcoiners because we get criticized a lot for it, but also just personally, I mean, I'm in the UK at the moment and we we do have an energy crisis. We do have people unable to, they can't afford to heat their homes. And I think it's just become this kind of real hot topic that people want to know a lot more about. I've read some of your articles on it and uh, yeah, we really want to dig into that with you today, but it would be good just for those who don't know, please explain what the Doomberg project is, the background and I know you can't tell us who's behind it, but like, what is the mission here? Sure. Yeah, so Doomberg is um, it's the work of my life, and it's um, we, we run a sub stack. We publish 
six to eight articles a month, as you alluded to. We, we come from the energy commodity space. So our, our background is um, I'm a, a PhD scientist and I spent a couple of decades in the commodity sector in various roles, a lot of technology development roles in the um, renewable energy space in particular. And um, so we know that space pretty well. Uh, we, were, we were a small consulting firm for several years, and then we um, got hit by COVID, like everybody else, got hit pretty hard, actually, and uh, decided to reinvent ourselves and opened up a line of consulting where we helped content creators who sold into Wall Street run their businesses better. And that was great. And then one of our largest clients um, encouraged us to start our own um, because you know we, we always joked with this person that they wouldn't listen to all of our advice. And he said, well, if you do your own, you'll have nobody to blame but yourself if it doesn't succeed. And um, and so we did. We launched Bloomberg in May of 2021, and it's been a fascinating ride. A year later, we went to a paid newsletter. Uh, we've had uh, a lot of success. We've been able to put our old business basically on runoff. And now we uh, essentially just do Doomberg for a living. Um, and at last I checked, we were number one in, in the world on the finance um, category, which is a great category to be uh, involved with. And so, yeah, it's, it's really been an amazing thrill. It's been an amazing ride. It, it's succeeded beyond all our wildest uh, imagination. So here we are talking to you. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll get you a few more subscribers for people listening to this show. Um, but yeah, like this year is for us, the en energy has just become this whole hot topic for Bitcoiners. Uh, and as I said, like yeah, wider communities as well, especially in the UK. Um, and you sign off for your emails like energy is life. How do you kind of how do you kind of explain what's happened in twenty twenty two? Like, what what is your kind of like overall kind of feelings about what's happened in twenty two? Yeah, so what happened in twenty twenty two actually began in um, twenty twenty one, really. Um, but uh, a, a crisis in Europe, where, which is where you are, and by the way, we're publishing a piece on this um, tomorrow called "The Whims of Gaia." Uh, basically, um, an energy crisis in Europe spread to the rest of the world, and the crisis derives from several factors. Um, one of which is sort of um, a deep opposition to fossil fuels and, most importantly, nuclear power, um, uh, a, a total reliance on uh, intermittent renewable energy. Um, and then obviously, you know, the war in Ukraine added uh, fuel to the fire, pardon the metaphor, but um, things got much worse after um, the tanks rolled over the line <laughs> in Ukraine. And um, Europe um, basically was forced to pay whatever the market clearing price was for every BTU of energy it could get, regardless of its carbon footprint or its cost, and they did. And then thus far this winter, luckily, um, Mother Nature has has uh, done some favors for Europe and uh, the worst of the crisis and some of the worst case scenario risks seem to have been taken off the table, which is something we cheer wholeheartedly. But essentially, um, the world found out in 2022 that um, during times of energy abundance, it's easy to take for granted just how important energy is to the operation of our society. And during times of energy scarcity, like we had uh, in the middle of 2022, um, things can go a little haywire, uh, and they did. And we saw prices that were unthinkable. Um, and you know, the, the, we hope that the weather continues, but you know, Europe's got to turn around and, and do it all over again for next winter, um, this time without the benefit of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. So, you know, and things went global pretty quickly. So, you know, Europe incrementally bidding for um, every cargo of LNG caused global prices in the rest of the world to rise and coal being more expensive than oil for a good period of time this year is a remarkable thing. Um, so really everything just sort of went haywire uh, and it just proves just how important energy is. Uh, like the old saying goes, you really miss the electricity when it goes off. Yeah. So... I'm kind of I kind of want to understand a little bit more about how we got here, especially in Europe. Uh, my personal kind of experience of understanding 
uh, energy and specifically with regards to climate change. I, I was definitely somebody when I was, you know, maybe f- even five years ago, maybe even less, w- was somebody highly concerned about global warming and uh, highly concerned with the use of fossil fuels. And I've kind of gone on a journey where I, I spent a bit of time uh, uh, listening to and reading a lot of the work of Alex Epstein, who, who I don't agree with entirely, but he did also make me kind of reconsider a, a, a lot of the roles of different kind of forms of energy. And so I've been trying to go down this rabbit hole, trying to understand like, what should the energy mix be? You know, are renewables good for society? So I kind of want to dig into a few few bits of this with you, but is there a kind of, have you come to a point where you ha- have like a, a perfect energy mix? What do you think the energy mix should be? Yeah, so our view is that there is no path to decarbonization that does not involve nuclear power, uh, uh, nuclear energy at the heart of it. Um, There are paths to radically reduce our energy consumption, which involve mass starvation and death and suffering. uh, But we take the view that that's an unacceptable option. Um, We also read uh, Alex's work, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be a guest on his podcast. He's a a brilliant guy. He makes a very um, powerful argument, and he is certainly an extremely effective debater uh, on the topic and uh, comes prepared, uh, as you probably experienced. Uh, But in our view, um, you know, nuclear power at the heart of it, um, there's always going to be a need for fossil fuels, especially in certain applications where um, electricity and batteries won't work. Uh, Imagine diesel trucks uh, in mines um, and so on. Um, we, are, we laid out a policy um, you know, that has nuclear power at the heart of it. Um, and if we are going to do solar, then we should um, re-domesticate that supply chain instead of having China control over 98% of some of the key manufacturing um, choke points. Um, and then there is, a, there is a place for fossil fuels and natural gas. Uh, we think natural gas should replace coal. Um, especially uh, in home heating. Uh, there's still parts of Europe, uh, Poland in particular, where literally heating your homes with coal is, is common. Um, but, you know, the path has to go through nuclear. And that's the thing that is most puzzling about the climate change movement as they have rebranded themselves, um, is their, their deep opposition to what is the obvious solution. Um, a, a freshly built nuclear power plant today comes with essentially no risk, could last a century, produces um, carbon-free electricity effectively indefinitely, um, is technology we completely understand, and the energy payback period itself is less than six weeks. So the total amount of energy that goes into constructing a nuclear power plant gets paid back in six weeks, whereas with solar, um, you're looking uh, as a period measured in years. Um, And so, yeah, there will come a time where we land on the same answer, um, only after we've tried all the stupid ones. Um, But the, the, the proactive shutdown of much of Europe's nuclear fleet, especially in Belgium and Germany, is a scandal of epic proportions. And the genesis of that movement needs to be investigated because I think if you do, you'll find significant foreign interference uh, with that particular domestic policy. Uh, okay, you're alluding to something there. Is, is there anything more you can say on that? Oh, I, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that um, Russia is behind uh, much of the German opposition to nuclear energy. And, um, you know, the former um, his name escapes me, but the, the the former chancellor of Germany sits on the board of you know uh, Gazprom, um, and uh, it's just unquestionable that prior to the uh, Ukraine invasion, that the biggest beneficiary of of European uh, fallacies on, on nuclear energy was Russia. Um, in fact, as we've learned, the, the entire German manufacturing sector became addicted to cheap Russian natural gas. 
And uh, the struggles they're going to have in the, in the years ahead can be tied directly to the fateful decision to, to roll the dice and, and, and join with Russia uh, for something as critically important as their fundamental energy needs. And, um, and so now what we see is, is a return to coal. You know, if you, if you look at the uh, carbon footprint of the German electricity grid, um, it, it's often above, you know, 500 grams of carbon dioxide per, you know, megawatt, megawatt hour of electricity, whatever the, the, the metrics are, um, bested only by Poland. Um, whereas Norway is, you know, and France, which has a, a large nuclear fleet, which thankfully is now being run a little bit better than it had been, um, much, much greener. And so um, the, the solution exists. If you take Ontario, it has basically a, a carbon-free grid. Um, uh, it's, it's supplied by nuclear power and hydro electricity, um, very, very, very little natural gas um, and no coal. It can be done. Um, last I checked, Ontario was a civilized society and the streets were clean and you could walk around and enjoy nature. Like um, this, is, this is all really just a farce. Um, proactively shutting down nuclear power plants, as I said at the beginning of this answer, is a scandal. And I, and I think um, when this is done, and it will be done, this, like all crises, will pass. Um, a, a real hard look at how we got here, I think, is in order. What was Where were the main objections for nuclear coming from? Was it uh, like a propaganda message that man, managed to uh, yeah. filter through all of Europe? Yeah, especially in Germany. Um, and then with the Fukushima accident, um, that's when the, the opponents of nuclear power really pushed hard. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Like even the Californians, you know, the most liberal part of the U.S. recognized that shutting down Diablo Canyon was maybe a mistake in the middle of rolling blackouts as it is. Um, Diablo Canyon produces 10% of California's electricity and 20% of its baseload power. And yet they were thinking about closing it down. And this is how deep the propaganda against it has gone. You know, we wrote a piece um, tackling this, this, this fallacy that nuclear waste is some dramatic, you know, generational condemnation of, of, of a environmental calamity. It's all made up. I mean, literally, you cannot find a single death associated with a nuclear waste. Um, and yet people die all the time drilling for oil and gas. And um, most of the solar in the world comes from slave labor in China, like these are all trade-offs. There are no answers, there are only trade-offs. And when you measure all of the trade-offs, nuclear power is so fundamentally better um, that, that it's, it's a joke. Now, a lot of this too can be ascribed to what, uh, what is known as sort of the Malthusian origins of the modern environmental movement, where literally um, there's a, a strong streak of anti-human sort of population bomb fears where um, they would like less people on the planet um, to which we say you first. Um, I guess, like, sure, um, why don't you lead by example on that one? And surprisingly few of them do. Um, but yeah, so there, if you go back and look in the 50s and 60s, um, the, the main fear of environmentalists was the propagation of nuclear power precisely because it delivered um, plentiful bounties of energy to what they would consider the unwashed masses. Um, and they worried that these unwashed masses armed with bountiful energy would soak up all the other resources of the world and leave less for them. Um, and so this is true. This is like at the heart of the environmental movement still, uh, we argue, because the, the, their policies today are indistinguishable from the policies that flowed from the Malthusian origins of, of those radical movements. And they have been extraordinarily effective in managing the propaganda, much to the shame of the nuclear power industry. They've just been lapped uh, by, by far more effective attorneys and PR firms and, 
and um, you know, passionate guests on television. And thank God we have the Alex Epsteins of the world to finally begin to make the, the counterpoint um, that society needs to hear. Sp specifically with Fukushima, um, that was kind of like a unique scenario with where it was positioned, right? Its location near near the ocean. Was, wasn't that like a uh, something that was people were critical of? Sure. I mean, in hindsight, yeah, you, probably not the best place in the world to build a nuclear power plant. But at the same time, um, the world still spins. You know, I mean, I've been oh, to yeah. Japan since then. It's um, again, we dropped how many bombs did we drop in World War Two in Europe? Um, you know, we, we literally dropped two nuclear bombs in Japan. Um, the the dangers of nuclear power, especially freshly built ones where you can take things like that into account, um, have been so widely overblown that it's borderline criminal. Hmm, interesting. So with regards to nuclear, if if that is to be centered to this, um, what's the kind of timescale on this? Because we hear, you know, we've had various people on the show to talk about nuclear, and they always talk about, well, to have a new nuclear plant could be 10 to 25 years. I've heard those kind of yeah. broad range uh, of dates. But is that all just regulation, which is slowing things down? Of, of course, yes. Um, look, we, we wrote a piece about how um, how crisis can speed things up. You know, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article about how uh, Germany has made this floating uh, natural gas uh, LNG import facility in a year when it would typically take five. Um, the same environmentalists who sue to slow every new project down as much as possible, who um, stack regulatory um, agencies with their allies, who advocate for laws to be passed that totally restrict um, the ability to get anything done in a sensible fashion, turn around and say, oh, it's too expensive and takes too long. Like, that's a choice. Uh, we did the Manhattan Project in three years. Like, Germany has proven, you know, it's the exception that proves the rule. The fact that they were able to um, build this uh, LNG import facility uh, on a moment's notice, um, that that tells you that this is basically a choice. Right. Okay. So realistically, how long would a nuclear plant take? Because I mean, I mean, what I'm trying to imagine is like specifically with regards to the UK, I think we've commissioned a new nuclear plant to be built. But realistically, if the government wanted to push this forward, is this something that could take three years? Sure. Well, look, at, here's the proof. Go to China. Yeah. They have 50 reactors under construction and another 100 in design. And I can assure you it's not going to take them 10 years. Um, to build these reactors. Now, maybe we want to have slightly better standards um, and a little bit more regulatory oversight. We're all for an appropriate amount uh, of oversight. Um, but there's anybody who's arguing that it's too expensive or takes too long is probably part of the, the reason why it's too expensive and takes too long. Um, so there needs to be a regulatory shift. There needs to be an embracement, uh, a get it done mentality, a crisis mentality, because we're in one. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we wrote about this, I think, I think it was a piece called Molecular Delusions, where basically on the, because of the crisis, they could just turn around and, and build this thing in less than, less than a year. And, um, and so if, if the UK truly had to, um, it wouldn't take 10 years to build a nuclear reactor. Um, you could buy basically pre-designed reactors today. Hmm. So, what, can you talk to me a little bit about what what's been happening with France then, with uh, regards to their nuclear reactors? Because, as I understand it, they they actually have quite a lot compared to the rest of Europe. I think uh, when we looked down here, what was it like fifty, fifty two, or something? But at the same time, I heard like something like half of them were, you know, uh, weren't currently operational. What's happened in France? Yeah. So um, France is an example of mismanaging an asset. As opposed to, it's more a, a condemnation of the, the management of that asset, the maintenance of it, um, 
and upkeep of it versus the underlying technology itself, although it is being used. You know, their mismanagement of their nuclear fleet is, is being used to hammer uh, nuclear power advocates. Um, and so, you know, let no crisis go to waste, I suppose, if you're a propagandist. Um, but yeah, at its peak, I believe France got something like 80% of its electricity from nuclear power. Um, and um, the, capacity, the, the measurement of how effective a power plant is is, is something called uh, its capacity factor, which is basically at the percent of time it's operating at its full capacity. And um, in the U.S. and in Germany, um, easy to achieve 90 plus percent capacity factors, whereas France this year at the, at the lowest was somewhere in the high 50s. Um, but they're climbing back now and uh, not a moment too soon because Europe needs every, uh, every electron it can get its hands on. Um, uh, coming into winter here. But yeah, that, so France is an example both of how you can design uh, an entire grid around nuclear power, and they have done so for decades. Um, they have amongst the lowest carbon footprints in the EU, I believe second only to Norway, which gets almost all of its electricity from hydro. Um, but at the same time, it's also an example of how you have to um, you have to invest to maintain no matter what uh, power, no matter where you get your power from, like windmills need to be serviced and solar panels need to be cleaned uh, and nuclear power plants need to be upkept. Uh, up and if you Google around, you'll see that there's actually a bit of a scandal there uh, as well. Uh, and so we shall see. But the good news is that the nuclear reactors are coming back uh, to, to closer to the capacity factors that they've been designed to operate at. Is this why... Um I've seen some people talk about like energy. Uh, this energy crisis was probably going to last till about twenty twenty six. Is this people kind of counting uh, that it might be like three four years to fix this kind of nuclear problem? Uh, I think actually that that I maybe read that is, on yours. Yeah, the time the timeline is driven by the speed with which uh, worldwide natural gas markets harmonize, which okay. is driven by the speed with which LNG export facilities can be built and the speed with which uh, LNG import facilities and the associated pipelines uh, can be built, which is why we mentioned this this German miracle, this engineering miracle in Germany that they were able to build one so quickly. If you look at the announced projects and the speed of construction, um, uh, I should maybe explain why natural gas is so critical because uh, natural gas is a gas and it's very hard to ship around the world. And in order to ship it, you have to chill it to incredibly low temperatures and then put it on these highly specialized LNG cargo boats. Um, and to chill it uh, at the export facility is an entirely different process than to regasify it at the import facility, which is why you need both. And so we saw at the height of the energy crisis, you know, natural gas in Europe actually touched $100 per million BTU while it was trading for $3 per million BTU in Canada. And the exact same molecules were selling for you know, a factor of 30 difference in price. Well, that's because uh, Canada has an abundance Europe had a chronic shortage and the price elasticity of demand for these things is pretty steep. And so um, the timeline of when the, particularly when the LNG import facilities are fully constructed in Europe, um, that's when the crisis will, will abate. I think they have one more hard winter to go, um, but countries like the US, Qatar, and Australia are building out, especially Qatar and the US, are building out massive amounts of LNG export facilities and the pipelines to connect the fields to these exports. Um, and then Europe has to build out um, the ability to receive this natural gas. Um, but there's still a big decision ahead for Germany. They have three nuclear reactors that they've extended through till April. If they choose to shut those down, um, it's, it's, well, first of all, it's crazy, but it also means um, it'll be all that much tougher to get through next winter. You know, if Germany did not have the three reactors online right now that it did, I could assure you that December would have been a far tougher experience than thankfully it has been. And so their decision to keep it open was a wise one.
Is there any indication of what they're going to do with this, though? I can't imagine that they would be silly enough to shut it down. That would shock me. I mean, at, at some point, if they did, you'd almost have to throw your hands in the, in the air and say, well, you deserve what's coming. You know, like we have a lot of subscribers in Germany. I've, I've visited Germany dozens of times. I have a lot of warm feelings for the country. Uh, I don't want them to go through a crisis. Um, but at some point, um, if, if, you, you know, if, if you just stab yourself in the eye with a pen enough times, you can't complain about being blind. Um, and so we shall see. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N. Io. Also today we have Fidelity Investments. Now one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry and Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. 
I just want to go back to you mentioned earlier. You said that the payback period for a nuclear plant is six six weeks, which kind of blew my mind. Is there kind of like a rough math on that that you can explain? Sure. Yeah. The the energy payback period, not the financial yeah. payback period. Um, the basically to make a nuclear power plant requires a fixed amount of cement and piping and various controls. But the uranium fuel is so energy dense and produces so much electricity for basically free thereafter. Um, that the amount of energy that, and by the way, because nuclear reactors run 24-7 at 90% capacity factor, essentially, um, it takes almost no time at all for these things to pay back their energy. When you compare the energy intensity of solar, um, we, hold, we wrote a whole piece on this um, because, of course, that is a very political number, but we wrote a piece uh, in November called Solar Calculator where we demystified the energy payback period of solar. Um, to take sand and make ultra high purity solar grade polysilicon is one of the most energy intense processes in industry. Um, you need like seven or eight nines of purity, 99.9999. Um, and in fact, most of the energy penalty comes from taking metallurgical grade polysilicon and purifying it to that degree. Because if you have any impurities at all, um, the, the cells don't operate, they, you know, you get a short. And so um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, controversy about what that payback is, because the lower the payback period, the more attractive it looks for solar. And so, you know, a lot of science becomes propaganda. And, and the devil is in the details, but the assumptions that you make really drive everything. But don't forget for solar, since the sun doesn't shine at night and it's often cloudy, the uh, stated, this is sort of standard sleight of hand of the pro-solar uh, propagandists, is the, the stated capacity uh, versus the actual capacity factors are two worlds apart. I mean, uh, the average, um, you know, for a very good um, commercial solar facility in the southern United States, you might get a capacity factor of around 30%. In Germany, where uh, you have long periods of basically very little sun, and they're far, you know, they're northern, uh, far more north than, say, California, um, you could go and look at the data. The capacity factor for German solar is 11%. So if you have 10 gigawatts of, power, of solar power installed on average, you're producing one, um, which is a, a remarkable thing. So when people talk about, look at how much solar we have installed, that's, you, you actually have to say how much energy is that producing and when, then you have to deal with the challenge of intermittency. Um, and so you have this enormous amount of energy that goes into making a solar power, which does eventually get paid back. In our piece, we landed somewhere between one and five years, um, probably closer to one in the US or and four or five in Germany. Um, but for nuclear power, I can send you a link afterwards um, with very detailed calculations. It's, it's roughly about six weeks, um, which means it doesn't take much energy to create energy versus solar. If let's just say the payback period for solar is two years. Um, if you want to convert 10% of your existing energy mix to solar, you need to invest 20% of it up front right away, which means you have to divert it from things that we use it for today, like sustaining life. Whereas with nuclear power, if it's six weeks, you know, you could get with 1% of your energy, you could install 9% of the baseload that you need. Um, and so the, the math is, it's literally 20 to 30 times better. Um, and that all comes down to the fact that nuclear power is a very high energy dense source. Energy density is king. If you give an engineer energy density, they can work magic. Um, harnessing low energy fuels, um, is an entirely different challenge, as we're finding out. And Germany's finding out the hard way. Look, everywhere it's tried, it ends up with a more expensive grid, a dirtier grid, 
and at least a less reliable grid, whether it's New England, which just went through a, a standard winter storm. Um, it basically was burning oil for 40% of its electricity at the peak of that storm. Um, how is this green, right? In California, rolling blackouts. Um, they, eventually, when we'll come to our senses. But yes, the energy payback period on nuclear is surprisingly small. People hate it when we say it because it goes against the narrative. Um, but the, the answer is, is nuclear in all calculations. So unironically, or ironically, depending on how you want to look at it, the, uh, the green activists have actually their their policies that they've encouraged have actually led to a dirtier grid. Yes. Well, again, because they would like a world where um, fewer people have a high standard of living and most people are opposed to that. And so you get this impasse. Um, and then the population panics and politicians panic and they do what Germany has done, which is restart old coal plants, buy every ton of coal they can get their hands on, open up new coal mines or, or reopen up old ones that have been shuttered. Um, buy natural gas from anyone who'll sell it, including Qatar, which, you know, with, with this World Cup uh, and all of the associated controversy around that, it didn't stop Germany from signing a long-term deal with Qatar. Um, you know, you have to plug your nose and forget your ethics at some point, or you starve your populace, and um, and it just it just doesn't work. And so, um, and, you know, then even going against Bitcoin miners, you know, we wrote a piece uh, which was... Um, relatively pro-Bitcoin mining in the sense that if you're going to introduce all this intermittency, then you need to have peaker power plants. The economics of peaker power plants don't work if they're only on a certain percentage of time. So if you could let them make some money by mining for Bitcoin while also agreeing to swiftly toggle in and out of the, um, uh, of the grid, um, you, you can be part of the solution. But of course, New York has effectively uh, passed regulations to, to shut that down. And uh, the one sort of publicly traded miner is, is now in a bit, in a bit of hurt. When you said earlier, I just need to pull you up on the point, you said these people want uh, uh, people to have a lower standard of living. Uh, do you mean that directly or indirectly that they're causing that? Because, I, look, I know uh, green activists, I know people who consider themselves environmentalists. I, I don't believe these people want others to have a lower standard of living. I think they believe they're right. They, I think they believe that there is a problem with fossil fuels and we need to curtail it. Maybe they're naive or they've received bad information, but I, I don't believe these people actually want people to have a worse standard of living. In the US, um, there was an article just came out of the New Yorker, um, which we're going to write a piece on, um, they don't like urban development, for example, um, or suburban development, like these big homes, McMansions, they call them. And, you know, um, that they believe, especially in the U.S. here, I, mean, I can't say how it's articulated in the U.K., that um, that the the big SUVs and the homes and, and all of the sort of niceties of, of making it in life are uh, obscene and uh, need to be curtailed. Um, and th this is many tens of thousands long word essay in the New Yorker when you read it. Um, okay. It, it, it's pretty clear. Um, like they think the way in which we heat our homes and the, even the way in which we've built our homes and the way in which our homes are sized all needs to come down. Um, and they're talking about radically reshaping the way humans live. And like, actually there's many in the environmental movement are anti-vehicle, for example. Um, and if you live in the United States, um, the vast majority of people who don't live in the city couldn't get by without their vehicles. And even many in the city still commute to work because our infrastructure is, is not, not nearly as developed as it should be. Um, but yeah, they are anti. Um, and then beyond that, of course, the Malthusian origins that we referred to earlier are real. And, and whether or not the marginal environmentalists believes that, they have been impacted by it. Um, as we like to say, if, you're, uh, if you think nuclear waste is an issue, you're either uh, a victim of propaganda or knowing um, 
creator of it. And, and so that the fact that the origins of the movement were decidedly anti-human, that the policies of today are consistent with that origin, and the physics dictate that a full implementation of the proposals would result in significant pain and loss to humans means that whether or not somebody consciously is Malthusian is a distinction without much of a difference. If you are for policies that are provably terrible for humans, it's pretty hard to argue that you're pro-human. And, and in the, the Alex Epstein makes this point quite convincingly in his, in his, in his last two books. Um, many people in this movement view humans as a priori and, and in all scenarios, damaging to nature, which must be protected. Um, and so that this is, I mean, people can be upset by it, but it is plain as day if you read what they actually say, if you go back and read the old books, if you, if you read what they still say today, like um, the, there is a degrowth movement um, that is very closely tied to the uh, anti-fossil fuel movement. And, mm. and we have to recognize that. I think to, to ignore it is, is to be, um, to be naive, frankly. Well, I'll dig out that New Yorker article. I, I want to yeah. read it, and I, I want to read your your response to it. I've also noticed, specifically with Alex Epstein, there has been uh, a kind of concerted effort to try and discredit him. Um, and a question I have for you, actually, that um, I wonder if you find this. So, you know, similarly with Bitcoin, trying to explain why Bitcoin matters to people. I, I, you know, we'll come to what your opinions are on it now. Maybe it's changed. And I think we'll agree with you because we're not crypto people. We're just Bitcoin. But yeah. sometimes in trying to explain it to people, why Bitcoin's important, why we care about it, or, you know, the, the issues that we have with the traditional financial system, trying to explain it in a way sometimes without sounding like some nut job. Because sometimes when you try and explain these things, I mean, some of my friends I absolutely think I'm some like weird Alex Jones style conspiracy theorist. And I try and explain things in the most rational way. I even recently we were talking about government debt and I was showing the, uh, the office for um, uh, uh, budget responsibility. I was literally showing the data on the government's website, explaining how they're consistently overspending year after year. But I still come across people who think I'm some kind of nutter. Do you have a similar thing where you're trying to explain this to people that, you know, maybe outside of Doomberg privately, when you're talking to friends, that, that it's hard to try and explain this without sounding like you're some conspiracy theorist? So interestingly, um, I find the opposite. Okay. There's a lot of people who are quietly uneasy about the way in which our energy policy is unfolding, um, especially in our demographic. Um, I would say that my children who have been sort of um, taught to hate fossil fuels from a very early age in school um, think I'm a bit orthogonal to what, um, what they would expect, although um, I don't, they're not bragging to their friends that we, we write Doomberg, if you, if you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. But the, your, your, your allusion to what transpired with Alex Epstein is, is a perfect point, which is, you know, they tried to cancel him effectively. Um, and he was powerful enough and had a big enough social media footprint that he was able to snuff that out um, uh, preemptively and good for him. They dug up some old writings that he had done when he was a college student and tried to put yeah. a nasty spin on it with the typical tricks. Um, we have found when we explain energy to people, they say, aha, thank you. Because I mean, ultimately, two, two things. One, we are first principle based on physics. And two, um, we have relevant experience in the area and education in the area, so we can speak to it credibly. And then three, one of the attributes of Doomberg is our ability to explain things in a way that non-experts can understand. And we try to do that in our private lives as well. But, you know, in our demographic, which is sort of, um, I would say, you know, 40, age 40 and above, um, 
sometimes much higher than 40. Um, we're sort of considered as a sort of breath of fresh air because we take the time to explain these things. And this is what our audience believes anyway. And so, um, so that's been quite good. Um, the, the, the issue around Bitcoin is, is very, so, you know, uh, maybe we could save that for when we want to talk about Bitcoin, but um, I can understand why that would be slightly different. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we will get to Bitcoin because I do want to find out your position on it now, especially as you've, you know, you've, you've attracted a Bitcoin audience. You've, I mean, you recently uh, moderated the chat between George Gammon and Michael Saylor. So I definitely want to get to that. I just still want to do a few bits uh, on the energy side of things. Has Doombo taken, see, I can't, I can't remember this from reading the emails that come through, but has Doombo taken a position on climate change and what the relative risks are? Um, I would say that um, we are closer to Alex Epstein and sort of Michael Schellenberger than mm -hmm. than. We certainly are not climate alarmists. Um, we, my, our view is that um, it's fine to try to reorganize society around the following equation. The highest standard of living we can give to the most amount of people divided by our carbon emissions. That's a fine goal. Um, I, I'm, but I, I do think that we're more than capable of handling any potential disruptions to the climate that may or may not arise in the next 50 years because of our consumption of fossil fuels. Um, okay. But we're more critical of the path function of minimizing the carbon emissions than we're concerned about. Um, and by the way, in a sense, that's sort of a lost debate anyway, so why waste your time? And if one thing we can do is affect change in the, in the policies that replace our current structure. Um, but I would say that I don't lie up at night worried about the planet I'm leaving behind for my kids. Huh, good. All right, just going back to the renewables, because... Uh, I've obviously been a, a proponent of renewables, a fan of uh, both wind and solar. I've looked at what's happened in specifically in Texas, because Texas is usually a case study for Bitcoin miners. Um, but if everything you're saying is correct about nuclear, what what argument really is there for wind and solar? Um, what part can they actually play? And is it just a total waste of time? And should everything be moved to nuclear? So I would say we are um, more opposed to wind than we are to solar for the following reason. Um, solar is very seductive because it, it, we get irradiated with many orders of magnitude more energy than we could ever possibly use on an ongoing basis. Um, fractions of a percent, you know, I think it's something like 1% of the solar energy is captured in the form of photosynthesis and a very small fraction of that is used to feed us. Like there's just so much energy basically for free hitting the earth every day that it's a problem that's always worth investigating, always worth studying, always worth developing. Our position on solar is the U.S. needs to reclaim, or the West, Europe and, and the U.S. need to reclaim um, their manufacturing ability in the space because right now it's basically outsourced to China, which is using dirty coal and, and slave labor to, uh, to produce the panels that we all proudly put on our homes. Um, I own a fair bit of solar technology, um, mostly as a sort of backup. Um, and, and so solar, you know, if we could crack the intermittency problem, which again, Bitcoin mining could potentially help, um, it would, uh, it, it could play a significant role in our energy future, and we would be certainly for its continued development. Um, wind, on the other hand, um, is really just an atrocity. Um, you know, giant amounts of of, of concrete, of, of epoxy, of of, of um, you know high end magnets in the in the motors. Um, a lot of damage to the wildlife. A lot of damage, especially offshore. You know. Um, for people that are supposed to be pro-planet, um, to be for wind and against nuclear is just absurd on its face. And that's because of a lot of the, you know, we know a lot of birds are 
killed by uh, flying into the blades yeah. or flying into the the units. And whales and, you know, marine life and the construction of these things. Like, And they're an eyesore, like, let's be honest. Um, I drive through um, the rural parts of the state that I live in here in the U.S., and they've got the landscape, and they never seem to be moving. Um, you know, they seem to have an awful lot of downtime. It's the same issue, intermittency, same issue with extended energy payback periods. Most of, um, most of the, these projects are just tax harvesting, tax loss harvesting for, um, for rich people. I mean, these, these credits get bundled into, uh, into financial vehicles that allow wealthy people to avoid paying taxes. And so that there's a whole other scandal embedded there. So I was just having a look at um, uh, energy on the grid right now in the UK, and the um, amount of wind is at 56%. So that's yes. like obviously a huge part of our grid now. So sort of convincing people that that's not been a good investment, it's going to be really hard, surely. Well, but let me, let me correct you, though. Not that long ago, it was next to nothing. And it's that intermittency, that instability that it brings into the grid. Because when it's not 56%, but it's 4%, mm -hmm. that other 52% has to come from somewhere. And it's usually a natural gas peaker plant that is filling the void. And wow. so um, you are correct that today in Germany and in the UK, it's warm and it's windy. Great. Um, the power grid is expected to be on all the time. And it's the, the wildness of the, like wind is even less predictable than solar because you know solar is not going to happen at night and you can predict the weather seven or eight days out. Um, but wind is a whole different matter. And if you look at that um, percent of the grid that is um, coming from wind over time, you will see a very chaotic line and the operators of that grid, and, you know, an electricity grid is a very fine balancing act between supply and demand. And, um, and so when people turn on the switch, they expect the light to come on. And, and so um, the wind volatility is the issue, um, not so much um, the amount that it can produce at any particular time. But presumably that wind has taken over from, even if it's intermittent, in that intermittent period, it's taken over from coal or gas, I would imagine. Um, so is that a even if it's intermittent, is that better for the time that it's up and running? Well, again, it depends on how you calculate it. So the cost of being ready for the intermittency is never included yeah. in the cost and the payback period of, of wind, right? Um, and what is the point if you can't like, just use it? And so this is where storage is such a big deal, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like is it, if, you could, if you could run full throttle and store for when you don't have this intermittency, um, that would be great, except storage is not ready for it yet, uh, contrary to what people say. And so um, when it's windy, wind can produce a lot of power. Nuclear power produces the same amount of power all the time. Yeah. It's very predictable. So what about batteries? Again, this is another technology that people talk about, but it seems to be the one part of uh, uh, society where we don't seem to have technically advanced uh, with the pace of other kind of technologies. For some reason, uh, battery storage seems to just be something that, I don't know, it, it seems like to me batteries are pretty much the same technology we've had for the last 20, 30 years. Has anything been done in that area? So battery development is extraordinarily challenging and very, very incremental, percents of improvement a year um, at best. And batteries for you know, hyperelectric vehicles make a lot more sense than batteries for full electric vehicles. We could talk about that and make almost no sense for grid storage. Um, I'm not sure if you saw that uh, Joe Rogan had a guest that went viral this week uh, talking yes, about I did. Um, child labor and, and what they call artisanal mines uh, in the Congo. It's a scandal of, of epic proportions. Hmm. Um, the issue with batteries is we do not have enough materials 
uh, in places we're willing to mine to satisfy the projections for electric vehicles, let alone electric vehicles plus storage. And the amount of batteries you would need to store an hour's worth of the UK's grid is unfathomable. Uh, the very same people who are for battery storage are opposed to the permitting of all these new mines that will be needed um, and all the diesel fuel that will go into the trucks that will do the mining uh, to get this job done. Our view on batteries is since batteries are a constraint, we should prioritize to that constraint. Um, if you have one full battery electric vehicle today, Peter, um, there's probably an 80 kilowatt hour battery pack in there. And so for that 80 kilowatt hour battery pack, we will abate your fossil fuel use of one person. If you split that battery pack in four and produce four plug-in hybrid electric vehicles where the vast majority of people can abate 90% of their fossil fuel use, um, four times 90 is 360, which means plug-in hybrids are 3.6 times better for displacing fossil fuels um, than full battery electrics, but the governments around the world are basically prioritizing full BEVs over plug-in hybrids. That's an example of a stupid policy that we could change today that we would be all for. Um, plug-in hybrids are great. They solve a lot of the problem. They don't come with range anxiety. Um, and for the first 40 or 50 miles that you would drive on a 20 kilowatt hour battery um, are carbon free, essentially. Well, I mean, depending on where you get your electricity, of course, but certainly fossil fuel free. And then um, the engine would kick in once the battery is depleted and you could charge it again um, overnight. And so um, the, the equation we should be optimizing for batteries is gallons of fossil fuel abated per kilowatt hour. Um, the, the, the one vehicle that has done the most to abate fossil fuel use in the world is of course the, the Toyota Prius, which has a much smaller battery pack than that. Um, and you get 40 to 50 miles per gallon versus a fleet average when they were rolled out of, uh, in the low 20s. Uh, and so, you know, those are the types of things that we should be prioritizing. But storage for the grid is incredibly hard. You know, our, our good friend, Dr. Chris Kiefer, who, who runs uh, the Decouple podcast, had a brilliant guy, um, Mark Nelson, uh, who is a nuclear power expert. They did a show called Masterclass on Storage, and I would encourage everybody to listen to it. It was really brilliantly done. Um, battery packs for storage is probably the dumbest of the suite of very bad ideas being put forth today, and that's being kind. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. 
which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. So would you say the electric car market itself is a bit of a scam in the way it's being sold to us? Uh, again, um, I we are for the proliferation of technologies that could abate the amount of gasoline that we use to power our vehicles. So to the extent that um, the explosion in the development and in the interest of electric vehicles has caused the automakers to um, radically reconsider how the car of the future will be made, that's an unabashedly positive thing. Um, We would be for um, plug-in hybrids and hybrids um, as a pathway to when battery technology gets to the point where we could completely abate the need for for gasoline. Um, the technology and the battery materials aren't quite there yet, as you've highlighted. And so we're big believers in that you should, um, you know, uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. We have technologies that can rapidly increase um, the, the, the fuel efficiency of the modern vehicle with, with minimal sacrifice to standard of living, go back to the same topic, um, and we should deploy them uh, in a smart way. So I, I, I wouldn't say that it's a scam. I think there are an awful lot of um, fishy startups and the whole SPAC boom and all that stuff that turned out to be scams. But the concept of partnering um, smaller and smaller internal combustion engines with bigger and bigger batteries is one that we think is, is intelligent and we would support. I'm just going to reiterate what you said as well about that Rogan show is with uh, Siddharth Kara. It, like, if anyone's listened hasn't listened to that show, they should. It's uh, that is a massive scandal in what is happening with the mining of cobalt in in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, it kind of blew my mind. He's got a book coming out which I I'm very interested in reading, but we will put that one up in the show notes. I'm not sure if Danny's listened to it. It's funny you should say that because, like, I. We know the mining industry well and have consulted in the space and, again, come from the commodity sector. This is widely known. Like, this is common knowledge in industry that um, 70% of the world's cobalt, which finds its way into basically all of the rechargeable batteries on the planet, comes from some of the most horrendous places on Earth uh, as measured by the treatment of labor and child labor and and the conditions under which these people are forced to work. Um, this is widely known. It's interesting to me that it's gone super viral all of a sudden. I guess Joe Rogan can do that. But um, this is one of those same thing like, you know, I, I, with these um, 
Apple iPhone cities in China, like we call them cities, but they're pretty indistinguishable from from forced labor camps, if you think about it. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the euphemisms that these public affairs teams have used at these big companies, even just the the word artisanal sounds so sweet and harmless. Um, but artisanal is code for slave labor uh, in the Congo, um, literally hammering away with with primitive tools to get the cobalt out of the ground that is then processed by China and stuck into every device that is critical to our lives today. Like this, again, this is a choice. Um, uh, we could invest um, to to develop our own cobalt mines. There's there's cobalt around the world. It's just not economic. So again, like the fact that we have decided that price matters more than the, the lives of these people is a choice. It's not put in anybody's face, but it's real. And Joe, to the extent that Joe Rogan and his guests um, begin to put it in people's face, I think that's an important thing. Well, I'm wondering what pressure will now come on the likes of Elon Musk and Tim Cook. Um, you would hope a lot of pressure to the point where they actually have to do something about this. Because my assumption is they're going to, the likes of Tesla and, and uh, Apple are going to be some of the biggest buyers of cobalt. Yeah, uh, of all the automakers now. Don't forget, I mean, BYD is a much bigger uh, electric vehicle operator than than Tesla. Uh, in the last week in China, I think I saw some numbers where Tesla sold 9,000 vehicles and BYD sold 56,000 vehicles. I mean, um, there, there's a whole lot of people that have a lot of explaining to do. Now, it should be said that one of the largest, most heavily invested in research projects in the world is developing lithium-ion batteries that don't need cobalt. Um, and And... That's going to be a challenge. Um, there are other battery technologies like that Toyota has been developing um, as well on the horizon. So um, to the extent that this scandal motivates people to develop technologies that move away from cobalt, um, that too will be a good thing. But this is widely known. You know, it's surprising to me that this suddenly becomes you know, around the clock news and, and so viral because this is ask anybody like all the Western mining companies got out of there years ago just to get away from the taint of it. Um, left very valuable concessions and resources behind that the Chinese swept, swept in and basically took over. Um, wherever we have outsourced major dirty manufacturing like this to China, um, it, like the piece we just wrote on solar, like most, most people don't realize that almost every solar cell in the world is commingled with polysilicon that was made by, you know, forced labor. Um, uh, and, and the U.S. has this crazy policy where we are incentivizing demand and stopping the importation um, um, because the stuff comes from the Ugars. And so it, it's out there, everybody knows it, and then suddenly we start caring about it. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm all for it. It's just an interesting phenomenon as sort of a, as a person in the media, um, you could probably understand like what makes things go viral and what gets people interested is something we're endlessly fascinated by. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd heard previously about these child minds in um in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I think I went onto the Tesla website and they had a whole section, maybe on their website or in, in one of their prospectuses, but explaining how they ethically source their cobalt. Obviously, now listening to this show, I know that was complete bullshit. Right. Um, but I just, it'd just be interesting to see what pressure's put on the likes of Elon Musk. Because he's the kind of person that if the pressure does come on it, he will have to do something about it and you know, probably can do something about it. I think Tim Cook as well, though. I mean, he, you know, um, Apple in particular is is at risk here. Um, and, not, and by the way, it's not just cobalt in the Congo. You know, this same polysilicon that goes in to make solar finds its way into all the chips in the world, right? And so the entire economy, many of the key choke points in the entire economy are are this is the this is the natural consequence of NIMBYism. Um, if you do not want to have mines operating home. 
and you outsource them, you also outsource the oversight and the environmental impact that those mines will have. So again, um, we wrote a piece about magnesium. Uh, magnesium is absolutely critical to the auto industry. Um, when Dow shut down its last magnesium plant uh, on the Gulf Coast, China basically took over that entire industry. Um, magnesium is incredibly dirty to make and tough on the environment. Um, and yet in the US or in the UK or in the EU or, or in Australia or in Korea, um, we have environmental controls. You could, it's more expensive, right, to hold companies up to standards and to make sure that they're not polluting local rivers and, um, and that they're properly permitted and inspected and, and companies are fined if they break their permits and they release too much pollution. None of that goes on in China. Um, so we're just scarring their environment um, to make ours seem artificially better. Um, this is a, we really have to have a sort of a, a come to Jesus moment, you know, where we talk about the trade-offs here. Um, if you like, we rewrote a piece about uh, a lithium discovery in Maine, a really amazing hard rock lithium discovery in Maine that will never get developed uh, because Maine has basically outlawed the permitting of new mines in its state. And yet the same environmental groups that were behind the law and cheered its passage, this law that bans permits of new mines, are for the mandate of electric vehicle penetration in Maine. And we made the joke in the piece, you know, like this new mine is 10 miles away as the crow flies from one of the best ski resorts in the Northeast. And I can assure you that if you went into that parking lot, you would see many Teslas. Um, and yet the lithium that's needed, never mind just cobalt, lithium is a very dirty process too, right? Um, the lithium that's needed is right next door, but won't ever be developed. Um, not in our garden, uh, but maybe in yours. You know? And hmm. so this is not only is there not enough of it, the way in which it's being made today um, allows us to sort of turn a blind eye to the environmental damage that's being done. Like, do we care about the planet um, or do we care about the ski hill in Maine? I think you're right. Come to Jesus moment is needed. All right, listen, we can't let you go without talking a little bit about Bitcoin. You said when you first wrote about it, you were critical of it. Um, you are critical of the wider crypto industry. We're a Bitcoin-only podcast. We very rarely talk about anything else. Um, we're obviously proponents and, and supporters of Bitcoin, but kind of where are you at with it now? Because obviously you've been become more exposed to it by the fact you've got an audience that comes to you who are Bitcoiners. Like, where are you guys with it now? Yeah, so let's take a step back and, and start with where I'm sure you and you and I and Danny all agree, um, which is there is a need for uh, ensuring against the debasement of fiat currencies. Um, I think that government spending and government printing is out of control. Uh, I, uh, a big proponent of gold, and I think in the rationale for gold and Bitcoin, there's an awful lot of overlap in the Venn diagram. Um, and I think as an asset um, amongst the digital currencies. Um, if we were to buy one, it would be Bitcoin. Um, if. We are no. If we were to buy one, yeah, and we might. I had a conversation with Lynn Alden about it. That if you know, if the crypto um, world explodes to the point where it drags down the price of Bitcoin to a, a, an attractive enough level, I would toss a few percent of my net worth towards it. Um, and I jokingly said to her when I had that private conversation that me just asking you how to buy it might mark a bottom. Um, because I, I was getting ready for much lower prices. Um, this was shortly after the um, FTX, you know, SBF uh, implosion occurred. Um, and so... Um, Sorry, just ahead. to jump in, what's an, what's an attractive price for you? Uh, I told her that I'd be a buyer at 5000 uh, And when would you be a seller? Oh, I would just buy and hold. So um, I should explain my personal investing philosophy. Um, we earn money and, and, and we transact in fiat because that's, you know, we're law-abiding citizens and that's the way the world works and it's convenient. 
Um, we save money by buying real assets like gold and land and collectibles. And then we invest privately where we could affect the outcome with our own skills and network. And we sort of call that sweat alpha. Um, we, we don't speculate in the stock market, um, but we do save um, by buying real assets. And if we were to buy Bitcoin, that would be an allocation um, where in that category of allocation that we would make it. We would never buy crypto. We think all crypto are Ponzi's. Um, to the extent that Bitcoin is an asset, and Bitcoin does have some useful properties. Um, I just don't know how it'll ever be. Our, our critics, our critique of Bitcoin has always been twofold. One, um, the regulatory regime will not allow it, and they will crack down on it, and it will be used um, as a bridge to central bank digital currencies, which we think are a surveillance nightmare. Um, and then two, that the price of Bitcoin uh, was being artificially manipulated by the crypto world vis-a-vis -vis Tether and, and other stable coins. Um, and we think that a bottom won't be in for Bitcoin until the Tether situation is resolved. And um, that's why I was talking to Lynn about learning how to actually buy and store it, you know, in my own hard wallet or cold wallet or whatever you guys call it. Um, but I, I understand the, the attractiveness of it and I understand that the Bitcoin network itself is a pretty interesting phenomenon and the decentralization of of it is attractive to me. I just don't think the government's going to let me spend it. And look what they did in Canada. You know, we wrote a piece um, called "Just Watch Me" that that wrote that roasted um, Justin Trudeau, who I think is the is the intellectual weak link uh, of of a pretty pathetic set of leaders in the G7 today, as it stands. Um, but the first thing they did was they you know slapped uh, sanctions on these wallets that were donating to uh, to the Bitcoin crowd. I think the sanctioning of Tornado Cash is a real troubling sign. We wrote a piece on that. Uh, but hold well. on, the, the Canadian government also sanctioned donations which were made Correct. in fiat as well. Exactly. It wasn't just Bitcoin. Is, right, but when it mattered, you couldn't spend your Bitcoin, <laughs> right? And so the whole point is that like, you still have to operate within society and it's up. Our, our sort of, I had a great conversation with Marty Bent on this. Um, you know, uh, ultimately, money is what the government says it is. And so the solution to our money problems isn't a new currency, it's a new government. Um, this is probably where we, we disagree a little bit. Uh, it's hard for us to envision where you could legally use Bitcoin as a currency in the U.S. if the government didn't want you to, um, which is what we saw in Canada in a very small, very small way. But like, look at how they sanctioned Tornado Cash, right? Um, yes, Tornado Cash is used for money laundering, but there are also legitimate uses for it, like wanting to make a private donation that can't be traced back to your main assets. Um, criminals use highways. We wouldn't tear up a highway just because criminals happen to use it, but they sanctioned a piece of software. Um, which we think was a very dangerous precedent as well. So, but back to Bitcoin, um, <clears throat> when Tether is resolved and Binance is resolved and Bitfinex is resolved and all of this is sort of washed away, that's when we think the bottom of this sort of secular bear market in Bitcoin will be in. And that's a point where we would make a multiple percent allocation of our net worth and stick it in a safe somewhere and give it to our children someday, like the gold coins they'll get when I die as well. Huh. Uh, what, if, what if we are at the bottom there? And you miss it. Then I will have missed it. Yeah. You know, I'm not, you know, I, this is why I don't play in the stock market. I'm not good at predicting prices. Um, so. so what what is your fear with Tether? Because this is a rumor that's come up for years and years and years. I just think that the, this is the part where I perhaps disagree with, with many in the Bitcoin community um, to not acknowledge that this phenomenon is affecting the price of Bitcoin or that there is, an awful lot of red flags uh, around the organization. Uh, you know, the biggest user of it was Sam Bankman-Fried, right? Literally. Um, and so um, 
I simply don't believe that they have the assets they claim to have to back the stablecoin that they've issued, on, in contrast to Circle, who I do believe, and USDC. Um, and I do put, we made a prediction in our sort of uh, year in review for our pro tier um, that when the dust settles, USDC will be the stablecoin of choice in the digital currency world, and it'll be fully approved you know, by the US authorities uh, for that purpose. Um, I don't believe Tether's story. Um, I don't believe Binance's story. I don't believe Bitfinex's story. So I think they're all going to get washed out. And once they do, the price of Bitcoin will be a real price, in my view. Um, and if it's up from here, great, congratulations. And if it's down from here, interesting, it might be a buying opportunity. Hmm. Um, so, but I think the failure to acknowledge the cancer of Tether um, is to the detriment of the Bitcoin community. Uh, many people that I respect on almost all other issues have a different view than me, and that's fine. By the way, it's totally fine that you and I could disagree on. So like you said with Alex Epstein, like I, I don't agree with everything that he says, but he's intelligent. He expresses his views politely, and mm -hmm. he makes me think. Uh, and those are three wonderful attributes of any human, and I'm happy to talk to Alex anytime and happy to talk to most polite Bitcoin uh, proponents as well, because I found many of them to be intelligent, to have strongly held views that they express politely, and that's fine. Yeah, you also get a few that will... Uh... Sure. Do it not so politely. <laughs> sure. And I get, look, I get trolls all the time on Twitter from, from the renewable crowd, from the anti-nuclear crowd, from the Bitcoin crowd, from the anti-Bitcoin crowd. Like if you, if, you know, we have a saying that if a troll t um, uh, tweets something bad about you, but you have them on mute, did they even type? Uh, because it like, doesn't really matter. Like, but that's not my audience. So like, we have an ideal client. We know who they are, and that's who we cater to. We don't cater to the trolls. All right. Just a final thing for me. Uh, what are you looking at for 2023? What should, what should we be thinking about? What do you think our audience should be thinking about? Yeah, I think um, the resolution of the European energy crisis and how well January and February are with regard to weather and, and gas use is a big one. Obviously, um, we believe that Tether Finance and Bitfinex will be resolved. I think um, <coughs> SBF is going to turn state's evidence and roll up that whole um, ugly side of the industry. Uh, we'll get a true price for Bitcoin, which is great. Um, and I do think that China's reopening is really... 180 degree change, literally overnight. Uh, we have many friends in China. I used to lead a large team that was based uh, based there and traveled there four times a year for the better part of a decade. Um, the 180 in China is gonna shock people. Um, COVID is probably in, in 70 to 80% of the population right now. And the thing is they did this just ahead of Chinese New Year where they have this mass migration. So it's gonna be in everybody. And then when they come out of New Year, the Chinese economy is going to be roaring hot. Um, it's going to look bad for the next two or three months because there's going to be missing workers and supply chain issues and all that stuff. But uh, look out world because China's coming back in 2023 in a big way. All right. Well, listen, uh, tell people where to go and find out more, where they can subscribe. Uh, do you know what's funny thing was, actually? I've been getting your emails and reading them, and I only found out today I wasn't actually a subscriber. I am now. I, I have a paid subscription, but I didn't realize that from the emails. But uh, tell people where to go and subscribe. Yeah, so our free subscribers, you know, do get a pretty healthy preview of all of our pieces. So that's why you were reading um, some of our words, but hopefully not getting all the way to the end, because otherwise there's something wrong with our software. Uh, yeah, so all of our writing could be found at doomberg.substack.com. Uh, we are 100% subscriber supported. Uh, we accept no ads and, or sponsorships. There's nothing wrong with those business models, but uh, we believe we have complete editorial freedom running the subscription model. Uh, we're also on Twitter at doombergt. T is in Twitter. Um, somebody is um, squatting on the word, uh, the handle Doomberg, which is unfortunate. But uh, at Doomberg T is where we are, as long as 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 Twitter is still a thing. Um, and uh, yeah, but pre pre predominantly at at Substack, which has been great. Um, and like we said, we publish six eight times a week. 
Um, our objective is to delight our subscribers, and we work every day to do so. Amazing. Well, listen, it's great to have you on. Hopefully we can do this again sometime next year, have another catch up, find out what's going on. Uh, I just wish you a happy new year and yeah, hopefully we'll see you in 2023. Same to you guys. It's a, it was a great pleasure. And, and I'll tell you what, if Tether does get resolved, uh, we'll come back on and talk about it. All right, we'll do that. All right, take care. Have a great new year. Thanks, you too. All right. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, it's great, man. I really like Doomberg. Really like everything he's doing. I well, I say he. It's really a group of people. But I love everything they're doing. I love the Substack. It's definitely worth a subscription. Go and check that out. And yeah, the end of the year. Can't believe it. I think we've made about 160 shows, which is insane. We've traveled all over. We've had so many good guests on the show. It's been an insane year, and I've absolutely loved it. And I just want to say a massive thanks to everyone who supports the show. I know not everyone agrees with me. I know not everyone likes the football stuff, but I also do appreciate that a lot of people get in touch and do appreciate the show and what we're doing. We try to be as fair as possible. We try and have as many guests on as possible. We try and listen to all views. And I know sometimes that you may not agree with the guests or agree with the topics or agree with my opinions, but I think it's important we discuss as many ideas as possible. So thank you to everyone who has supported the show, supported the football team, supported what we're doing. Me and Danny massively appreciate you, and as does the rest of the team. Neil, Emma, Ben, everyone who's worked so hard on the show this year to produce the best Bitcoin podcast as possible. Love you all. Have a great new year, and I will see you in 2023, and we're going to kick off the year with an absolute banger of a show. All right, take care. See you soon. 